0: Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Acute pancreatitis is a common gastrointestinal disease requiring acute care in the intensive care unit. The range of severity in acute pancreatitis is wide. Patients present with mild cases on one extreme and on the other end of the spectrum, patients can present with severe cases with multiple organ failure and serious local complications require critical care. In today's episode of the podcast, we will focus on current management recommendations for severe acute pancreatitis. Our guest is Dr. Mark Besenling. Dr. Besselink is professor of pancreatic and hepatobiliary surgery at Amsterdam University Medical Centers. Dr. Besselink is a member of the Dutch pancre- Pancreatitis Study Group and is the senior investigator of the POINTER Clinical Trial, a randomized clinical trial published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine that evaluated immediate versus postponed interventions for infected necrotizing pancreatitis. Mark, welcome to Critical Matters.
1: Thank you very much and thanks for having me, it's a great honor.
0: Well, Obviously, we were talking before we started recording that this is a common disease that is full of dogma, especially in the ICU, and old precepts that probably are not um, aligned with what current evidence is. And I know that you, through your work with the Dutch pancreatitis have really advanced our understanding of uh, the surgical management and the interventional management of this disease. So perhaps a good place to start would be just with the basics of what's the di- how do we diagnose acute pancreatitis?
1: Yeah, so thanks. So basically uh, abdominal pain, uh, MLAs or lipase higher than three times the upper limit of normal for your hospital and or CT scan findings compatible with pancreatitis. Now you need only two out of three. So we have a new patient. Uh, you can basically only diagnose it with abdominal pain and uh, serum values you don't necessarily need a scan but if you want to make a scan be aware if you do a scan on admission you may miss necrotizing pancreatitis and collections which take a few days to develop
0: yep and i think it's an important point also in terms of what you require because we we tend to forget that we can make diagnoses such as acute pancreatitis with simple labs and a good clinical history and exam And not necessarily have to get like a thousand things for every patient that we suspect abdominal pain in, right?
1: Correct, correct. The only reason, the only indication basically for a scan on admission for acute pancreatitis, that is if you are unsure about the diagnosis that, for instance, a patient has peritonitis, you should not have peritonitis, meaning uh, abdominal guarding or pain when releasing the abdominal wall. You should not have that with pancreatitis, which is a retroperitoneal organ. So you should have a lot of pain, but no physical signs of peritonitis.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of etiology for acute pancreatitis, is there, what are the things that you think our clinicians and listeners should be aware of? Yeah,
1: so the vast majority is gallstones. Uh, even if you don't see the gallstones, even in those patients, more than half, it's still gallstones or biliary sludge or a biliary cause and then alcohol, so probably, so biliary nowadays, they 60%, six zero, alcohol another 20, and then you have another 10 in which we cannot find a, a cause first, and then the rest is just a long, a long range of causes.
0: In terms of, you mentioned how we make a diagnosis, some of the important causes, I presume that part of our initial workup really focuses obviously in A, making the diagnosis, B, evaluating the etiology, and C, perhaps trying to evaluate how severe the presentation is. But what would you recommend, Mark, as an initial diagnostic workup in terms of the basic things that we should be looking at as clinicians if we're suspecting acute pancreatitis?
1: Well, in, in, the, in the older days, there was a lot of emphasis of, on doing predictive scores, predicting how, how severe the pancreatitis would be. But in essence, that's no longer relevant because at the moment, A, there is no intervention or treatment that you will start on the basis of high risk and B, there is probably not a single ICU in the world anymore that will admit the patient who may become sick in the future. So I think the early management, basically, you as intensivists need to, tre- to train us as surgeons and, and internal medicine or gastroenterology doctors how to assess vital functions in the first one and two days, meaning... Giving sufficient fluids and and probably a lot of fluids, but monitor carefully and slow down the the amount of fluids administered once there is sufficient urinary output and we see uh, blood pressure and heart rate um, uh, stabilizing. And those things is what go wrong in many, many places. Patients are not um, treated uh, with sufficient fluids initially. And then later on, they, they. I mean... Many hospitals, I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but in the Netherlands, you may just get three or four liters of uh, saline infusion for four days in a row without anyone thinking after 24 hours, we need to tune this down a bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely uh, dig into that a little bit more. But you did mention severity. And I wanted to ask you your perspective as a, as a clinician. So obviously, there's a lot of risk scores that have been uh, published around pancreatitis. Uh, Apache-2, Ransom's criteria, modified Glasgow acute pancreatitis, uh, BISAP. Are those really useful at the bedside or they're more for studies? Pure for studies. So what
1: they are used for in studies is, so you can include the 50% of patients who are high risk, the 5-0, 50%. And among those, half of them will actually get sick. So you have a higher risk ratio in your clinical trials, but basically outside clinical trials, and I hope I don't offend anyone, but basically there's no clinical use for these scores at the present time.
0: And probably as we talk about the definition, ultimately what it really matters is assessing the patient and trying to identify whether there are local complications and acute uh, organ dysfunction, correct?
1: Yeah, so, so one uh, simple technique is uh, looking at CRP for instance. So if CRP remains high after three, four days, doesn't come down, The vast majority of these patients have necrotizing pancreatitis but i expect as an intensivist you would not see these patients because they are typically on on the ward the most challenging patients are of course the ones who present with organ failure and remain in organ failure throughout the first one
0: absolutely and mark let me ask you in terms of uh classifications uh, or definitions for a severe acute pancreatitis i understand that today we kind of go either with the atlanta classification or what's called the determinant based classification could you comment on that a little bit more
1: yeah so the atlanta uh, revised atlanta classification is uh what what i use um but there is a determinant based classification they use the same variables uh, which are collections with uh, with necrosis in our around the pancreas and then uh, organ failure. I I think in the end, it does not really make that much difference. What you need to be on the lookout for is organ failure and collections in and around the pancreas. So if you have a collection which is non-infected, that does not require treatment. In fact, if you treat that, it will become infected and you will worsen the prognosis. So so a lot of it is just straightforward, state-of-the-art organ failure management. So if you have organ failure, clearly it's severe. And the other is if you have a collection, but you do not have organ failure, but you also do not have fever or signs of infection, then basically it's still, it is called severe pancreatitis, but the outcome is clearly a lot better than once you have organ.
0: Yeah. So clearly, like you mentioned, Mark, organ failure should be within the purvey of what we do in the intensive care unit. And there's nothing specific for acute pancreatitis. We support the organs like we do in any other multi-system disease. And then the other part of this is understanding fluid collections and that distinction that we'll dive in a little bit deeper in a, in a little bit of where it's infected or not. But before we go there, what I would like to do is just touch on some of the management uh, issues at the initial phase. We did talk a little bit about fluids and I, I just wanna kind of cap the fluid discussion with what you said earlier, right? That it's kind of uh, either we, 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 we have a, an error of omission, or of commission so either we don't give enough fluids or we give too much fluids and both obviously are dangerous for these patients so really trying to provide the adequate amount of fluids is there any comments that you have or any preferences and based on the literature and what type of fluid we should be using
1: no i mean you'd be surprised in europe how many hospitals still give high amounts of, of regular saline uh, to these patients which which i guess but i mean intensivists are in my View the specialists on this, but th- th- there are two randomized trials actually from China where they um, intervened in fluid management and tried to get and, and based on hematocrit just did a maximum uh, aggressive resuscitation, and in those studies mortality was worse by by maximizing aggressive resuscitation. So I guess it's just uh, a common sense and and basically tailoring it to urinary output, cardiovascular um, science. But I mean, that's what, what you guys and girls are much better at than we as, uh, as non-intensivists.
0: Is there any, any value, I know that there's some studies that suggest that perhaps a ringer's lactate might have some benefits, but that obviously has never been demonstrated in a clinical trial. But is there, I mean, there's other reasons why probably isotonic um, and, uh, fluids are, are, are valuable in critical care. Is that something that you think about a lot yeah
1: I do I do and I, and I do think it makes more sense in in smaller randomized trials. it seemed a bit better but but more on um, not on the hard endpoints like mortality so so those studies have not been done, but everybody thinks that yeah it would make sense probably if you would do a very very large study the, most people would predict that it would really be a benefit, but so far it has not been shown
0: okay so in terms of Kind of where we stand today, obviously, is appropriate uh, judicial fluid management early on without overdoing it, perhaps some, some advantages to use ringer's lactate as your to-go fluid. And uh, when you talked about higher mortality, one of the concerns, obviously, that we have with acute pancreatitis is uh, intra-abdominal compartment syndrome. Is that something that should always be in the back of our mind and uh, maybe something that we don't think about so much as, as medical intensivists, but definitely that you in the surgical world see all the time?
1: Absolutely, so so in my view, those are, I think, the two main issues. So an intraabdominal catastrophe that you may miss, which is either abdominal compartment syndrome or bowel ischemia, chronic necrosis, something like that. That's that's that that's one, and then the other is, um, of course, bleeding. Maybe the second, and then the third, infected necrosis. And the the problem comes when you have a patient who has been sick from the beginning. And has a collection, and everybody s- starts towards the source control reflex, which makes sense, uh, but in essence, the, f- the first one, two weeks of pancreatitis are like a major trauma, a major burn patient. It, it is inflammation, it's not infection.:
0: Excellent. And the second aspect that that I think has a lot of misconceptions still is nutritional support in the early phases. So historically, uh, people have talked about um, strict MPOs. Then people started pushing for post uh, uh, Eugenio, uh, um tube feeds. Uh, there's people obviously who have always pushed, and now we learned that um, uh, parental nutrition probably not a good idea. What's the the summary of what we should be doing for these patients from a nutritional standpoint?
1: Yeah. So actually, in in, in a bigger standpoint, we did we did multiple randomized trials. Showing in anything you want to do in pancreatitis more aggressive or earlier or sooner or bigger, it's always worse. So the same is for the nutrition. You can hold off safely for a couple of days. If, if a patient is still on a ventilator or, or not on a ventilator, but not able to get sufficient calories, then you can start uh, naso enteral tube feeding or probably in the ICU setting nasogastric feeding. You, you don't need to feed aggressively in the first couple of days. It's basically like a, post-op patient. They need some nutrition, but there's no clinical benefit from an aggressive nutritional management within 24 hours. That was the Python trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine.
0: And in terms of if if you start enteral feeding in somebody who, let's say, is intubated, and uh, is there any value in having a post pyloric tube or should you just do an orogastric and that's, that's okay?
1: Yeah, so there are three, I think there are three relatively small Randomized trials, also in the in the ward, the clinical ward setting, there's no downside to nasogastric feeding. So, so if if you are used in the ICU to do nasogastric feeding, you can do that in these pancreatitis patients as well safely.
0: So the summary here would be: if somebody's not intubated, that maybe even outside of the ICU, start enteral. I mean, regular nutrition, or once they tolerate it, based on their symptoms without necessarily going uh, be, to be too aggressive and starting something immediately. And then those who are a little bit sicker, once they're hemodynamically compensated and stable, start some sort of enteral nutrition and see how they tolerate.
1: Yeah, well, that, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned the yeah, hemodynamically stable patient. That is an odd thing that happened in our probiotics trial where we did, uh, we intervened within the first 72 hours of pancreatitis with naso-enteral probiotics uh, combined with um, fiber-rich tube feeding, those patients had a significant worse mortality, mostly due to probably, although we are not sure, probably a non-inclusive mesenteric ischemia, uh, a thing that intensivists uh, recognize from, say, post-op patients uh, getting bowel ischemia from the, from the exact spot where tube feeding enters uh, the bowel. And that is a poorly understood phenomenon, but it's probably related to, to flow. Uh, uh, so, so that's actually another argument to, to withhold exactly as you summarized tube feeding in the first couple of days.
0: Excellent. Another area that I think uh, we've always been back and forth and still unclear for a lot of clinicians is antibiotics. So from giving everybody antibiotics to getting a CT in everybody, and you see anything that you suspect is necrosis giving antibiotics, to probably a more current uh, evidence aligned recommendation of not giving antibiotics in the, in the in the early days could you just tell us mark your take on antibiotics
1: yeah so um it's become quite clear from several randomized trials that the the, the hypothesis that if you sterilize the gut or just give systemic antibiotics Improves outcome. That's not true. So prophylactic antibiotics, no role for in pancreatitis. The one thing that is that has become very clear from the point of trial uh, last month in New England, that once you have documented or highly suspicion, high suspicion of infected necrotizing pancreatitis, that then one in three or more than one in three of the patients will be treated successfully with only antibiotics. But that is a treatment, not a prophylaxis.
0: So really, we should remember that in the early phases, these patients might present with systemic inflammatory response syndrome, similar to sepsis, but it's likely not due to infection. So there's no rush to give them infections. And we should only give them antibiotics early on if we have a documented infection, either cholangitis, we can sometimes present with pancreatitis or some other infection. And then, like you said, once we have a documented or high suspicion or a fluid collection that is necrotic and infected, Obviously, antibiotics not only are treatment, but they can avoid, as we'll talk in a little bit, uh, more interventions down, down the road. And I think that's important because I still see that a lot of people, as a knee, knee-jerk knee reflection, will basically start antibiotics in very sick pancreatitis patients in the ICU on day one.
1: Yeah and, yeah, and moreover, so if you're treating a very, very sick patient and you see fluid in the abdomen, the the reflex we have as intensivists probably also and surgeons the urge to drain that is very strong i mean for for many years i had sort of an on page i was on call with my pager for including patients in these trials we did and i spoke to so many intensivists it's really difficult to withhold intervention i and i i feel your pain (laughs) but please
0: hold off the action bias right we always want to do more and we're learning that sometimes more is worse (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly.
1: And especially in pancreatitis, which I think is a one off disease. It, it doesn't compare. It's very, it, it is challenging. It's the only disease that I know that you just hold off antibiotics, wait, wait, wait. And that's re- it doesn't feel natural to us.
0: Yeah. What about the role of ERCP?
1: Yeah, same story. Do less. Less is more. So we did APEC, APEC, APEC randomized trial published in Lancet again aggressive within 24 hours ercp everyone with biliary pancreatitis predicted high risk so the high risk score versus just wait and see and again no benefit for early ercp maybe even a bit worse so again also there just wait look at the cholestasis parameters clearly if 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 bilirubin or whatever goes up and you get cholangitis uh, 39 degree higher fever and spiking chills and a bilirubin of 100 of course then you need to do an ercp but actually that's super rare so in the vast majority of patients the stones will just pass because lab will improve and you do not need an ercp one and two if in doubt most big centers nowadays will have availability of eos endoscopic ultrasound to check first what's going on inside the bowel because don't forget mortality of ercp is 0.2 to 0.5 percent mortality
0: yeah, so definitely, I mean, I think, like you you said, I mean, in terms of our approach, more more conservative. And uh, would, would cholangitis be a, a situation where you actually would give not only antibiotics, but also do an ERCP earlier? Absolutely,
1: yeah. That's that's an indication for an, an urgent ERCP, yes.
0: Okay, perfect. And, and then I wanted to dive into, uh, obviously we, we did mention the POINTER trial, but ultimately the management of local complications. Could we start, Mark, just by a very brief overview of what are the types of local complications that that we talk about in acute pancreatitis?
1: Yeah. So, two things. So, you have necrosis of the parenchyma or the the, the fatty tissue around the pancreas. So, necrotizing pancreatitis is a, is a is a time is a term which summarizes any form of necrosis in and around the pancreas. That's one. Then, two, you have an uh, an acute necrotic collection, meaning like basically. Uh, anything around the pancreas that sort of uh, starts to to wall off to 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 look like a little bit of walled off thing. And once it's fully walled off, you have a wall fully encircling it, then you call it walled off necrosis. And the the latter, the walled off necrosis, the one is what most gastroenterologists surgeons would like to see because that clearly then there is a clear demarcation between dead and 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 alive stuff, which makes any intervention uh, a lot safer.
0: And obviously the the main factor to get there is time. Absolutely. And another aspect that I I believe is important, and you mentioned it earlier, is that it is not uncommon to have just edema or some fluid around the pancreas and acute pancreatitis. And I think a lot of clinicians might confuse that with these more complicated and necrotizing collections. And like you said, have that impulse to think that a needle should be stuck there. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so so basically, the size of the collection doesn't so much matter. It can be it can be five by ten or thirty by thirty. Uh, if the patient has no sign, clinical signs of infection, uh, then that can can be left alone. You'd be surprised what you see in a scan six months later. So either if there are impacted gas bubbles within the collection, so these little black dots. Uh, and you see them typically spread out through the collection, which which will tell you, listen, this is not a fluid collection. this is thick stuff, necrosis because the gas is impacted inside it, otherwise you would see an air fluid level right that's one, and two, if you're in doubt, patient is very sick, half of the patients, only half of those who have infection in the collection, have gas bubbles. the other half you cannot see on the c t scan. So those may require a sterile aspiration uh, to, de- to detect any bacteria in the collection. So, so that's the key point if they're infected or not. If not infected, leave it alone. It's not the source of your patient being sick.
0: Excellent. And, and just to, to, to dive a little bit deeper on this, I think it's important that there are a lot of clinical signs that can give you a good indication of potential infection of these necrotic fluid collections. You mentioned the CT appearance. I presume that also you could get biomarkers such as procalcitonin, and if that is very low, it'd be very unlikely that it's an infection, right? You can also look at other markers as well. And that in a lot of cases, like you said, the clinical diagnosis can be made and we can avoid a needle insertion to document infection. But in some cases, if if you're not sure, you might have to put that needle in, right?
1: Yeah, so I think in the first two weeks of pancreatitis in a sick patient, the ICU patient, it's basically impossible to differentiate uh, between inflammation and infection. So luckily, that's also not the major issue because it's very rare to have infection of a collection in the first two weeks. And if it were so, it can still be treated only with antibiotics. So I think in the first two weeks, there's definitely no no point to stick an needle in anything there around the pancreas. After two weeks. Uh, then, uh, then it may help you. Maybe it'll help you to tailor antibiotic treatment. Although, strangely enough, uh, because it's infected, it's because it's necrosis, it's not a, it's not an abscess. It's not a fluid collection. So you may have one bacteria on the left side of the collection. You can have another bacteria on the right side of the collection. So, so, so it's not 100% guaranteed that if you if you culture something and you tailor your antibiotics to that, that the patient will improve. So that makes it a bit more complicated. That if you're three, four weeks out and in doubt, I would stick a needle in uh, with a nice sterile approach. We would do the via intervention radiology that that may uh, may then really, really help you.
0: Excellent. And in terms of managing this, uh, obviously, as a surgeon, you you mentioned that your first impulse is always to perform surgery. uh, But in pancreatitis, it's a very individualized case where Perhaps waiting and not intervening is is the best mode. And we've learned that through the years. But I also think that we went from surgery to delaying surgery to stage interventions. And now we have the pointer trial that you published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. Could you just tell us a little bit about that trial, what you were looking at and what you found?
1: Yeah, basically, for the fourth or the fifth time in a row, I, I lost count. The same thing. We tried to be better by being more aggressive. So we thought. OK, let's do as we do in pancreatic surgery, which is any infected fluid drain as soon as possible, no matter how small, aggressive drainage. So we randomized patients who had documented or highly suspicion of infection to percutaneous or endoscopic transgastric drainage within 24 hours. So very aggressive versus antibiotics, wait and wait and see if we can reach the stage of walled off necrosis and then drain and surprisingly contrary to what we were expecting later so delaying waiting was better these patients the ones who recovered actually were home two weeks earlier two weeks earlier which was a big surprise
0: yeah and also they 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 required from what i read far less interventions which is always a good thing for patients from the patient perspective because every intervention is associated with its own potential complications like you mentioned and uh, the other thing that, that also struck me as as very, very interesting was that um, a lot of these patients actually did not require intervention at all, that there was a percent that was not insignificant, that with conservative management got better.
1: Absolutely. 39% only antibiotic treatment, no drain needed,
0: 39%. So I think that's another lesson of uh, less is is more and really... Being very thoughtful about these patients and trying to manage those those impulses. Another question, as we as we wrap up the the, the, the the complication, the local complication management is, are there other indications other than surgery that might require? I'm sorry, other than infection that might require intervention. I know that's not very common, but a lot of times these can cause obstructions and other problems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, so you need to be on the lookout for abdominal compartment syndrome. So any any patient that that you have progressive difficulty ventilating or needs to go on the on his abdomen to be ventilated, you you need to get a bladder pressure. So if you have new and it's a standard definition, if you have new progressing organ failure and the the bladder pressure goes up above 21. Think of it is basically abdominal compartment syndrome and that that requires a full length. Uh, midline uh, laparotomy and then with temporary closure of the abdomen with with some system that, that that may save the patient. There are some specialists I know who say abdominal compartment syndrome is just an early sign of death. But in fact, uh, I think to about one in three, maybe even up to one in two of the patients can be saved with adequate early management of abdominal compartment syndrome. One and two clearly bleeding, which may occur after as quickly as a week already. One to three weeks out, especially with infection, that may need um, usually usually intervention or radiology to coil uh, the bleeding. And then third, bowel ischemia.
0: Excellent. And uh, are there any concerns? I mean, in terms of obstruction of uh, uh, biliary can, uh, ducts, uh, that is that something that can occur with these collections? I have definitely not seen a lot of it, but no. obviously this is our area of expertise.
1: <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of talk of it. There may be some mild cholestasis, but. That it's very, very, very rare that the, that the collection of fully obstructs the hepatic bile duct. So that's not a clinical scenario you should, you should worry about.
0: Perfect. And one one uh, further question from a surgical perspective, which is not something that really we deal with in the ICU, but it's very important for our patients, and they usually ask us about this. You mentioned that the, the vast majority or the, the most important etiology relates to, to gallstones. And uh, what's the timing of um, gallbladder removal and surgery for these patients? Yeah,
1: so that was um, that was actually one of the trials that we did at a positive result with the proactive uh, intervention, is that if it's a mild pancreatitis, so it should not be a patient that you, you get in the ICU, a mild patient, so no organ failure, no collection, that patient should not go home with the gallbladder. So and that patient should have a cholecystectomy during the same admission. The only thing that the current idea is that if you have a severe pancreatitis, uh, then uh, the gallbladder needs to be removed after six weeks after discharge, but that may change in the future. So we are planning a study on that topic actually as well. But so mild pancreatitis, same admission called non-mild pancreatitis, outpatient clinic of the surgeon first.
0: As we close the, the clinical conversation, Mark, you obviously have done uh, an amazing uh, job with the, the, the Dutch pancreatic, pancreatitis group in terms of all the studies that have, you have really applied a, a rigorous scientific approach. And like you said, that's why we do the studies because a lot of times your clinical intuitions are proven wrong. And you've demonstrated, yeah. right, that uh, uh, a lot of times perhaps a more moderate approach is, is better for patients. What are the, the, the next big questions that you think remain unanswered in acute pancreatitis?
1: So, so the holy grail in pancreatitis is how to, how to sort of put a cap, how to damp the initial pro-inflammatory response. Because, because we just looked at 10-year uh, ICU mortality in early pancreatitis, and, and we've improved very, very little in the early pancreatitis mortality. A bit, but really surprisingly little. So, so we that's that's the next big thing. We need to find a way to 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 make sure that pro-inflammatory peak is is less high, and 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 so so studies are coming, but but that's that's the next big thing.
0: Excellent. Well, I really want to be respectful of your time and appreciate uh, you sharing your expertise. Again, thanks for the the wonderful uh, trial that was recently published, and we'll include all these trials in the show notes. Uh, Mark, we usually close the podcast with some questions unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Absolutely. Are there any books that have influenced you significantly, or that you have gifted to to, to others?
1: <laughs> House of God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that's a. It, it's interesting because obviously, when when I went to training, that was a a, 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 gr- a perfect read. I think that newer generations probably a bit detached from that, but a lot of it still holds true. So we'll definitely put that in the, in the in the in the show in the show notes. The second question relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or don't act like they believe.
1: Yeah. So so randomized trials. So they are a pain and a nuisance and they cost years to complete. But if you find a group of friends, and and you can you can pull it off. You you save more patients potentially with one trial than treating patients as a doctor during your entire career.
0: Yeah, and, and I think this is a, a very timely uh, comment. Uh, one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk with you and read your paper is that it was not related to COVID, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we've been uh, kind of um, immersed in COVID for almost two years in in the ICUs, and we're just coming off our fourth wave here in in Texas. But I think that we see that uh, still in COVID that uh, even in a pandemic getting together and doing the trials is what moves us forward and there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that in 2021 and finding a way to collaborate and find the right answers because uh, over and over again when we do the studies we find surprises and uh, a lot of what we think makes sense does not pan out but also I think that Uh, there's no, like you said, one trial, despite the pain and the difficulty ultimately will have an impact for years to come on patients that is hard to measure. Absolutely. And the last uh, question is just, is there anything that you would want to share with with our audience? Uh, Something that you want every intensivist to know could be a quote or fact or just a comment.
1: Well, um, it's often, if if you treat these sick patients, you, you may get into like a sort of a discussion with the surgeon. And I, I've had this feeling uh, often, but I, what I think what, what we should do more is, is 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 say to the surgeon, well, please five, find five minutes, come here, let's let's sit down, two of us, look at the scan and discuss this case. Because I think the typical phone call of the intensivist to the surgeon, you need to come over and do an operation or, or the other way around is usually what isn't the best way to treat our patients. And, and I, I, I make these mistakes still every day myself, but I yeah. think just get down here. So let's sit down together, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you, I don't care, but just look at the patient, sit down together, look at the scan and, and, and come up with a plan. That is, that is something we should do more than we probably all of us do.
0: Yeah. I think it's a great point, Mark. And I guess in terms of summary, the summarize of that is what I always try to remind myself, like you said, because we all fall in those same traps is we should listen more and ask more questions. Agree. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, We'll definitely uh, include all the trials you mentioned in in the show notes, and I, I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.